Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So this is the third class on the Aryapariyasana Sutta, the, um, the Sutta where the Buddha describes ignoble and noble searches. And so we learn that uh, ignoble searches is searching where the answers can't be found and really searching um, in a way that is, that is based on belief and faith and conjecture uh, that will only um, continue the distraction of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. And so I'm going to read, uh, go back to uh, about two paragraphs from what we already touched on. The Buddha's words, this Dhamma is subtle and is to be directly experienced, meaning it's not based on faith or belief or anything bestowed on us. We have to have the experience. To be directly experienced by the wise, But the world delights in attachment, is excited by attachment, is devoted to attachment, and worships attachment, meaning ongoing self-identification with with people, events, views, and ideas. For a world delighting in attachment, excited by attachment, devoted to attachment, worshipping attachment, conditioned towards self-identification from dependence on ignorance, this Dhamma is hard to see. The awakened state is also hard to realize. The awakened state, now the Buddha clearly defines what we're, what we're seeking. The awakened state is the resolution of all fabricated views. The relinquishment of all acquisitions, all the things that we've applied to ourselves and used to describe ourselves in the world. The ending of craving. The development of dispassion, which is the ending of eye-making the development of cessation, the development of unbinding, unbinding from all views ignorant of four noble truths. In other words, the development of unbinding is now having the four noble truths as the framework for how we view ourselves in relation to our moment-by-moment life. The Buddha continues. If I were to teach the Dhamma and others would not understand me, that would be tiresome for me, troublesome for me. So the Buddha... This relates also to the Loka Sutta. The Buddha is now describing his own thought process of should I go out and try to teach what I know? Now, the Buddha also understood that he was not a savior. He, he, never, under, he never presented himself as a savior. He never presented him, his Dhamma as a salvific religion. So his sole thought process was can he be effective in teaching what he knows? Is there a way to teach this? Is there a way to pierce the veil of human ignorance that the Buddha now understands? He understands how strongly people cling to those ignorant views. And that's what he's trying to decide for himself. And his first thought was that those people that don't understand him, if he tries to reach them, it's only going to be trouble for him. So why do it? Just then, the realization never known before occurred to me. I'll dismiss teaching that which only with great difficulty I attain. Meaning he's, he's now decided or had the thought that it's just too hard to teach this to people. 
This Dhamma is not easily realized by those overcome by greed, aversion, and delusion. This Dhamma is difficult to understand, subtle, deep, contrary to common belief. Those delighting in passion, their minds obscured in darkness, will not understand. So now the Buddha is going to mention a, um, uh, a disincarnate being as giving him guidance. Now we know, through the use of metaphor, that when the Buddha is referencing disincarnate, meeting, disincarnate beings, he's simply referencing different qualities of mind. It was common during the Buddha's time to ascribe qualities of mind to disincarnate beings such as Mara. Mara the Buddha always used as a metaphor for the suffering caused by ignorance. And so here, uh, the Brahma, um, how do I say it in there? Sahampati, um, was a common um, god during the Buddhist time. He was believed to be a higher being, someone that could offer you guidance. So he uses that common reference in this teaching. But we understand that this is just his own thought process. Then Brahma Sampati, or my own thought process, became aware of my thoughts. The world is lost. So the Buddha is describing this to himself. He's, he's having this internal conversation with himself. The world is lost. It's destroyed. The Arahant, the rightly self-awakened one, is inclined to dwelling in ease and not teaching his Dhamma. So he's saying that the most peaceful way I can live my life is to just stay present with myself and not get entangled in the world again. Brahma Sampati left his realm and came to me. He knelt on his right knee, bowed, and said, Rightly self-awakened one, please teach your Dhamma. Please teach your Dhamma. There are those with just a little dust in their eyes. They are suffering because they will not hear your Dhamma. There are those that are able to understand your Dhamma, meaning there's very few people that can understand. But because of that, you should go out and teach your Dhamma. They continued, In the past, there appeared among them the Magadans an impure Dhamma devised by the ignorant, which is what the Buddha described earlier, uh, the different teachers that he studied with and, and the way that their teachings were significant and well attended by other folks, but not leading to the, to the understanding that the Buddha described. Next week's class will be on the Nagara Sutta, where the Buddha gets into the the mental mechanics of what he was going through during this process. Teach your Dhamma to end the pain of birth, sickness, aging, death. Teach your Dhamma to end sorrow, regret, distress, despair, to end greed, aversion, and delusion. Teach your Dhamma so that they can also realize the unborn and the unexcelled, unexcelled release of the yoke of unbinding. Just as one standing on a high peak might see people below you, the wise one with profound vision <clears throat> must take your, your place in the palace of the Dhamma. I love that description that the Buddha uses, the palace of his Dhamma. It's a rich and rewarding place. It's a place of comfort and safety. Free from suffering, look on those suffering oppressed with birth and aging. So he's, he's now reminding himself to look out on those that don't understand but are able to understand with this true compassion rooted in wisdom, knowing that they are oppressed by their own human life, 
with birth and aging as a consequence of having a human life. Excuse me. You have conquered ignorance. Be a great teacher and wander without entanglement, meaning go back out into the world, but remain disentangled from the world. Teach your Dhamma. There will be those who will understand. Mindful of Sampati's plea and out of compassion for all beings, from my awakened state, I looked out onto the world. I saw beings with little dust in their eyes and beings with, with much. I saw uncluttered beings and dull beings. It's interesting that, and again, this is a translation and a word that I applied, but the use of the word dull, um, when I uh, researched it through the different Pali variations and Sanskrit Pali variations, that became the best word because it describes the dullness of life when we're rooted in ignorance because we're always grasping after things that are completely unfulfilling even though they think they will be fulfilling. It, it creates a constant distraction or a dullness or a dull quality to our life. I saw beings with good qualities and beings with bad qualities. So it's not a moral judgment that Buddha is making on people, good or bad. It's, it, it could be just as accurately stated as skillful, meaning those that could acquire the Dhamma, and unskillful, meaning those that simply are incapable of developing the Dhamma. And again, this points to the non-salvific nature of the Buddha's teaching. Just as now, during the Buddhist time, most spiritual disciplines slash religions were founded on the, on the belief of salvation, that this life is, the human life is so awful and fraught with danger that there must be something better. And that pernicious thought is what distracts everyone from this, having this human life. So once we buy in the, in the belief of the need for salvation, I've lost this human life because now I'm looking past this life towards something else and I can no longer be present for this. That's the basic, human, the basic Buddhist teaching or Buddhist teaching is to be present for this life. This moment has all the meaning our life will ever have if we can be present for it. That requires not needing this moment to be any different than it is. And we fall into that through greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. The Buddha continues, I looked out onto the world and saw beings hardened in their views, disgraced in danger. I looked out onto the world and I saw those that would be easy to teach my understanding, my right view. It is as if a pond is permeated with white and blue lotus, <clears throat> born and growing, immersed in the water. They flourish permeated with cool water from their root to tip, never, never standing above the surface. Even so, some might rise up and emerge from the murky water. So he's, again, he's using that metaphor as all human beings, that there's some of us that have the ability to rise up out of the murk and awaken. Again, there's no value judgment on all the others that can't, the Buddha understood the utter practicality of teaching only those with a little dust in their eyes because it would be a burden to not do so. To, to try to teach a salvific religion to a world that cannot be saved, because that's the nature of ignorance, would be foolish. And it would be foolish to follow something that is designed for salvation rather than understanding. And the great majority of people fall in 
to the latter, seeking salvation rather than understanding. Seeing thus, I decided to teach my Dhamma to open, to, the, to open the world to the path to cessation. Those with eyes to see and ears to hear could come forth in conviction. Those lacking the eyes to see or the ears to hear the pure Dhamma, I would not teach my refined and pure Dhamma. I would teach the pure Dhamma... I'm sorry. I would teach the pure Dhamma tirelessly and untroubled. So he set himself out on a path that would lead to, calm, to a, um, an ongoing peace and calm in teaching his Dhamma. He, again, this is an aspect of not becoming entangled in the world, not going to some place where he has no business being, meaning where people are not able to hear his Dhamma. And so it's one of the ways, one of the reasons why very early on I structured Cross River Meditation Sangha in this way. Um, more so in the beginning than now, there were, there were people that always wanted to introduce different teachings. Uh, I listened to, to this Buddhist teacher, why don't we talk about that? And I heard one of Pema Chodron's poems, let's talk about that. And I heard this psychiatrist talk about this Buddhist. None of that is related to what the Buddha actually taught. And so I decided long ago when I first started teaching that I was only going to teach what I knew to be what the Buddha taught because I was fortunate enough to come across this sutta and next week's sutta. I understood the importance of just teaching what the Buddha taught teaching rather than trying to appeal to every possible human being just to get them and come and listen to this crazy old man talk. And over the years, that has um, served to create a well-focused and well-informed sangha where each and every one of us, and you've all experienced this, are teachers to each and every one of us. In other words, we are mutually self-supporting because we are so well-focused and well-informed about what the Buddha actually taught. I would teach the pure Dhamma tirelessly and untroubled. Brahma Sahampati was pleased, meaning he was now coming to a resolution in his own mind. Then the, and the, the next line is, Saraputi then bowed and disappeared, meaning he had come to the conclusion. He understood now what he must do. Then the thought occurred to me, who should I first teach the Dhamma? Who will quickly understand? I thought of Alara Kalama, wise, intelligent, competent. But I heard that he had passed a week ago. Remember, Alara Kalama was one of the Buddha's teachers that the Buddha mastered his teaching. Alara Kalama offered uh, to Siddhartha to come and join him and sit and be on an equal footing as Alara Kalama. And uh, Siddhartha declined, saying that his Dhamma didn't lead to resolution. I thought what a great loss it was to my friend Alara. He would have quickly learned my Dhamma. Then he thought of Udaka Ramaputta. Again, the same thing. He, the, the Siddhartha studied with him, mastered it. Um, and Udaka Ramaputta asked Siddhartha to come join him and be his equal. And again, Siddhartha declined. I heard that he had just passed last night. It was a great loss to my friend Udaka. He was, he was as, as well. He too would have quickly learned my Dhamma. I then thought of the five friends I had wandered with while attending to ascetic practices. I knew they were in Deer Park at Esipatana. I took my leave to wander in stages to Isipatana. Among the way, I encountered 
Upala the Ajiva. He noticed my composure, my complexion, bright, and he inquired, on whose account have you gone forth? Who is your teacher? In whose Dhamma do you delight? So he noticed, he noticed the Buddha's countenance. He knew that, he knew that something was different about the Buddha, something that uh, was intriguing to him. He wanted to know. So he told, he told Apala, I have left the world behind through my own understanding. I am released from all wrong views, from all phenomena. I am empty of ignorance. I am free of craving. My realization is taught by none. To whom should I declare as my teacher? The Buddha is saying, nobody teaches me, I know. I have no teacher as one like me cannot be found. That's a pretty arrogant thing to say, isn't it? Excuse me. Many today would find that even hard to take. We're not supposed to have that much um, self-assuredness. But those that know can. The Buddha taught, calls this an inner poise. And we know that. How do we know it? How can we, how can we have that inner poise without being arrogant? Is through wise understanding, through actually having the direct experience of this. Those that don't know what they're teaching are arrogant. Those that are only promising hope without, having under, without understanding what they're teaching are truly arrogant, even though they might be. And I'm, I'm talking about people that I still consider my friends and that were completely sincere in what they were teaching. But they, had no, but they were teaching Buddhism, and they didn't know what they were teaching. They didn't know what the Buddha taught. And that's what I'm referring to. To whom should I declare as my teacher? I have no teacher as no one like me cannot be found. I have no counterpart, for I am an arahant in the world. I am an awakened being. I am the unexcelled teacher. Rightly self-awakened. The fires of passion are cooled. I am unbound. Think of the courage it took for this for Siddhartha to say this. I will set the wheel of the true Dharma rolling. I am traveling to Kasi. In a world afflicted with the darkness of ignorance, I beat the drum of wisdom. That's the kind of courage and conviction that we have to have, not in relation to the world, not as Dhamma teachers, unless we become Dhamma teachers. Some of us are in training. This is what we need to apply to our own Dhamma practice. We need to beat the drum of our own wisdom and not be, not be afraid. We need, we need to have the courage of our conviction to challenge our own ignorance. Upaka re- replied, From what you claim, you must be the ultimate conqueror. He's kind of giving me a little, a little jab. Conquerors like me have abandoned greed, aversion, and delusion. I have conquered all evil qualities. You are correct, Upaka. I am a conqueror. Upaka, unconvinced, shaking his head, took his leave. He just didn't believe him. I continued to the deer park. From afar, my five, my five friends saw me. I was no longer gaunt from ascetic self-denial. Thinking that I was living luxuriously, they they decided to not show me respect. So you remember, maybe not, uh, from the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, the very first teaching the Buddha ever gave, where he taught these five friends 
for the first time the Four Noble Truths and Kadana awakened during that teaching. As they approached these five friends, they noticed my awakened state. Standing in respect, they took my robe and bowl and prepared a seat. One of my friends took a bowl and began to wash my feet. They, however, addressed, addressed me by my familiar name, meaning Siddhartha. Friends, do not address the Tathagata, the rightly self-awakened one, in this way. I am rightly self-awakened. I am a worthy one. Listen carefully. I have realized the unborn and the unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding. I will teach you my understanding. Practice as I instruct you, and shortly you will also realize the unborn and the unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding. So that claim that if you practice this, you will shortly understand that the Buddha told his five friends, I tell every one of you, everyone that comes to Cross River Meditation Center, basically the same thing. If you practice in this way, very shortly you will realize this understanding. Excuse me. And so I'm going to ask every one of you, is that not the truth? Does anybody think it's not the truth? Because every one of you has, has very quickly developed an understanding of what this Dhamma is about and you've integrated it into your life. And again, just take, the, take time to tell me if, you, if that's not true, if I'm not making a true statement. And think about that. It's both, it's both incredibly remarkable and completely ordinary, isn't it? It should be this way. But the truth of the matter is that every one of you has taken to your own right effort and done this for yourself. You've developed this. You've done what the Buddha has instructed that we all must do. The group of five replied, from your practice of the, of the austerities, you did not attain any superior state, state or any higher knowledge or vision worthy of a noble one. How can, in other words, he did all these incredible and severe ascetic practices all those years with these five fellows, and they didn't do anything for him. So now they're asking, how can you now, living luxuriously, they thought just eating a, a normal diet, just taking in some nourishment, how can you now, living luxuriously, straying from your exertion and backsliding into abundance, have attained any superior state or any higher knowledge or vision of a noble one. They're still clinging to their practices as there is some value in that, in what they're doing, even though they didn't, they didn't bring them any kind of understanding, just pain and suffering. But because of that clinging, the attachment, they're questioning how could the Buddha relinquish what they're doing and gain something that they're seeking. The Buddha said, I replied, the Tathagata, is not living luxuriously or strayed from his exertion or backslided into abundance. The Tathagata, meaning the Buddha, is a worthy one. He's rightly self-awakened, meaning we do it ourselves. Listen carefully. I have realized the unborn and the unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding from wrong views. I will teach you my understanding. Practice as I instruct you and shortly you will also realize the unborn the unexcelled, the release of the yoke from unbinding. And see for yourself right here and right now. A second and a third time they doubted me and questioned me in this manner. I then asked them, have I ever claimed to be a rightly self-awakened one before? And they said, you have never claimed to be rightly self-awakened. 
I replied, the Tathagata is not living luxuriously or strayed from exertion or backslided into abundance. So they're thinking that if you're not practicing what they believe, what you must be practicing must be wrong because it's not in their beliefs. Even though they're still troubled in their beliefs. Their beliefs aren't giving them anything that they want. Yet because of their clinging, they're, they're, they're questioning what is right in front of them. Just like most of us do. The Tathagata is a worthy one, rightly self-awakened. Listen carefully. I have realized the unborn, the unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding. I will teach you my understanding. Practice as I instruct you. And shortly you will realize the unborn, the unexcelled, the release of the yoke of unbinding for yourself right here and right now. And so I convinced them of my knowledge and wisdom. Over time, living on, on alms, I instructed the group of five. Being subject themselves to birth, to sickness, to aging, to death, to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, despair, to greed, aversion, and delusion. And now understanding the suffering of birth, of sickness, of aging, of death, etc. They attain the unborn and the unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding, through practicing the Dhamma. Friends, craving and clinging arises from the five senses. Forms known from the eye, agreeable, pleasing, enticing, enchanting, are linked to sensual desire. In other words, what comes in contact with our senses through an unguarded sixth sense base a mind rooted in ignorance will grasp after these sensual desires that arise from contact. I see something that I want or that I feel I need or that I deserve. I want it. There's no, um, use kind of an ancient word, there's no interlocutor. There's nothing there to filter what's coming through to, the, uh, through, to result in a right view of what's occurring, meaning a, a dispassionate, impersonal view. Sounds known from the ear, agreeable, pleasing, enticing, enchanting, are linked to sensual desire. Aromas known from the nose, agreeable, pleasing, enticing, enchanting, are linked to sensual desire. Taste, etc., same thing. Tactile sensations are linked to sensual desire. Everything that's coming into my senses in a mind rooted in ignorance and prone to grasping after, prone to greed, aversion, and, and because of deluded thinking, leads to sensual desire. It's a consequence of having a human life. And because my mind is unguarded due to a lack of understanding, I can't help but constantly grasp after more. Anything that would continue to establish the me, even though it's a troubled, confused me, if it fits into into my wrong views, I'm going to continue to grasp after it unless something comes to interrupt that thought process. That's where jhana meditation, deepening concentration, allows us to begin this process. Now the Buddha says, any contemplative, any Brahmin, any seeker who clings to sensuality in this manner, infatuated and enchanted with sensuality, without understanding the suffering that follows, or the path to cessation, should be known as unfortunate and having and having met ruin. So there's so much in that one. I could, I could probably teach five classes on this one line, but I'm going to read it again and try to, try to conclude it this week. 
any contemplative, any Brahmin, any seeker, meaning anybody seeking, who clings to sensuality in this manner, infatuated and enchanted with, se- with sensuality, without understanding the suffering that follows, or the path, the eightfold path to cessation, should be known as unfortunate and having met ruin. I see this coalesce in many modern Buddhist practitioners, especially those that think that it is a mind-only practice, meaning meditation only, that create very deep problems for themselves. And I'm not saying every meditator. But what I've seen is that many people that meditate without any type of structure can often increase their own delusion because all that they're doing is rehashing what got them to this place in the first place. In other words, if all you do is focus on your ignorance through a meditation practice, which is what pe- most people are seeking through insight, meaning in a, a, an unfocused insight or in, unfocused Vipassana practice, only leads to do deeper delusion. This is where the framework or the path comes in. Because we know it's not just meditation. It's jhana meditation that allows us to incorporate the other seven factors of the Eightfold Path and now have an integrated practice of recognizing and, and interrupting that constant need for sensual desire. And now we can use our sixth sense base towards awakening rather than continuing our own ignorance. The Buddha says that those folks that are using their practices, as I, as I just described, not, not understanding suffering, following the wrong path, have lost their minds. And the world will have its way with them. The world will have its way with them. I could never understand why I was going from one practice to another practice, from one teacher to another, from one philosophy to another, to another, to another, from one famous teacher to another, to another, to another, from one great book to another, to another, to another, and I was still left confused or more confused than I was. I couldn't understand it. What's wrong with me? Why can't I get it? Well, the reason why I couldn't get it is there was nothing being taught for me to get. And it wasn't until I came across what the Buddha actually taught that I could get something worth worthwhile that I could stop losing my mind intentionally. It is as if a... It is... The Buddha is using a metaphor. It is as if a wild deer were caught in a heap of snares. This deer has met, has met misfortune and ruin. A hunter could do with them what they will. Meaning a human being is, it's a metaphor for a human being being entangled in the world. A deer caught in snares. There's no way out. In the same manner, any contemplative, any Brahmin, again, the Buddha is saying any seeker who doesn't understand the right path, any contemplative, any Brahmin, any seeker who clings to sensuality in this manner, infatuated and enchanted with sensuality, without understanding the suffering that follows or the path to cessation, should be known as unfortunate and having met their ruin. They have lost their minds and the world will have their way with them. Now, know this, friends. Any contemplative, any Brahmin, any seeker who no longer clings to sensuality in this manner, who are not infatuated or enchanted with sensuality, 
understanding the suffering that follows from craving and clinging, and who understands the path to cessation, should be known as fortunate and will not meet ruin. So again, the Buddha is just saying those that have now developed the Eightfold Path or are turning to the Eightfold Path will not meet ruin. They have control of their minds and the world will not have its way with them. That's another description of being disentangled with the world. And we'll know that because we won't feel that the world is thrashing us about. We will know that we have a certain direction in our life. We will know how to, um, how to seek true refuge in a Buddha, his Dhamma, and a well-focused Sangha. It is as if a wild deer avoided a hunter's snares. This deer has not mis- met misfortune and has avoided ruin. A hunter could not do with them what they will. In the same manner, any contemplative, any Brahmin, any seeker who does not cling to sensuality, who does not take things personally, who lives with dispassion, in this manner is not infatuated or enchanted with sensuality, who understands suffering, who understands the suffering that follows craving and clinging, and the path to cessation, should be known as fortunate and will not, meet, will not meet ruin. They have control of their minds and the world will not have its way with them. It is as if a wild deer is living carefree in all ways. Why is it carefree? Because it has gone beyond the hunter's range. Why are we carefree? Because we are disentangled in the world. We're still living in the world. In fact, we are more immediately involved in the world or mindfully involved in the world than ever before, but we are dispassionately and mindfully involved in the world. We're not taking what's occurring personally. Because it has that, that a person has gone beyond the hunter's range. In the same way, those engaged in the noble search, established in seclusion from sensuality and unskillful mental qualities, meaning established in jhana, Enter and remain in the first jhana. The first jhana is experienced as rapture born of that very seclusion. And we've talked about the four levels of jhana in, in earlier classes. It is accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. They have become lost to Mara, meaning lost to the effect of wrong views. That's just the beginning of our jhana practice. When we first take a breath and be our mindful of our breath, Mara or, or ignorance can no longer affect us. That's the metaphor that Buddha's using. They have become lost to Mara. That simple act of concentration obviates ignorance in that moment. Furthermore, those engaged in the noble search and to remain in the second jhana. This second jhana is experienced as rapture and pleasure born of that concentration. Free of directed thought and evaluation. With internal assurance, that inner poise, the joy of concentration permeates their entire mind and body. They have become lost to Mara, meaning lost to our own ignorance and the effect of wrong views. Furthermore, those engaged in the noble search and to remain in the third jhana. Our jhana practice is deepening. The third jhana, which is equanimous and mindful, a pleasant abiding, With a fading of rapture, this pleasant abiding permeates the entire mind and body. They have become lost to Mara. Furthermore, those engaged in the noble search and to remain in the fourth jhana, 
which is pure equanimity, a balanced, calm, peaceful mind. Being pure, neither pleasure nor pain is seen. They sit permeated in mind and body with pure, bright awareness. I would bet that every one of you has had that experience in your jhana practice, even if momentary. Sitting, sitting permeated in mind and body with pure, bright awareness. They have become lost to the effects of Mara and the effects of wrong view. And further still, those engaged in the noble search with complete abandonment of self-identification to form, with a fading of aversion, with a cessation of craving here and there, they enter and remain in the dimension of infinite space. They have become lost to Mara, lost to the effects of wrong views. And further still, those engaged in the noble search with complete abandonment of the di- dimension of infinite space, they enter and remain in the dimension of infinite consciousness. They have become lost to Mara, lost to the effects of all wrong views. And further still, those engaged in the noble search with complete abandon- abandonment of the dimension of infinite consciousness, they enter and remain in the, in the dimension of nothingness. Now these different dimensions that the Buddhas are describing are not dimensions that we should be seeking um, or to hoping to acquire, the Buddha is teaching these in the same sense as uh, dimensions rooted in ignorance, non-physical realms, speculative realms. They're to be recognized and abandoned, not sought after. Excuse me. Knowing there is nothing here, they have become, again, through all those speculative realms, the non-physical realm. Excuse me. Having recognized and abandoned grasping after non-physical realms, speculative self-establishments, knowing there is nothing here, they have become lost to Mara, lost to the effect of wrong views. In the sequencing, you could say that it is the um, near the culmination of the path when you recognize and abandon all speculative views, anything that we hope to establish a human being in non-human being realms, non-physical realms. And further still, those, in ta- those engaged with a noble search with complete abandonment of the dimension of nothingness and to remain in the dimension of neither perception nor non-perception. They have become lost to marrow, lost to the effects of wrong views. And further still, those still engaged with a noble search with, with complete abandonment of the dimension of neither perception nor non-perception, they enter and remain into the, in the perception of... I'm sorry, they... Read it again. With complete abandonment of the dimension of neither perception nor non-perception, they enter remain in, in the cessation of perception and feelings. Those of you that have studied Nagarjuna, one of the famous Zen teachers, he built his whole teaching career on trying to explain the dimension of neither perception nor non-perception and reconciling this, where the Buddha is saying, don't try to reconcile the perception of neither perception nor non-perception. It's irreconcilable. It's an entanglement. Let it go. Free of of reaction, 
free of reaction, knowledge and wisdom, well established, greed, aversion, and delusion are completely overcome. Meaning when we finally understand this speculative self-establishment, hoping to keep greed, aversion, and deluded thinking going in every and any realm we can imagine, and bringing us back to our own humanity, greed, aversion, and deluded thinking are finally overcome. By recognizing what we are, by letting go of every fabrication of what we are not, we can now understand and be free of self-induced dukkha, self-induced stress. They have become lost to Mara, lost to the effects of wrong views. Having engaged in a noble search, they are unattached to anything in the world. They are as carefree as a deer far removed from a hunter's range. Why are they as carefree as a deer far removed from a hunter's range? Because they have completed the noble search. Through their own efforts, one has gone beyond Mara's reach. They have gone beyond the reach of ignorance of four noble truths. Those who have engaged in the noble search, who have completely who have completed the Eightfold Path, are said to be rightly self-awakened. Those that have completed the Eightfold Path are rightly self-awakened. The Buddha is not awakening, awakening us. I am not awakening us. You are awakening yourselves. We are becoming rightly self-awakened, as the Buddha has. That's why I, I titled the book, Becoming Awakened, Becoming Buddha. Becoming Buddha, Becoming Awakened. Because that's what we're doing. We're not appealing to anything outside of ourselves. We're using our own resources focused through jhana meditation and framed by the Eightfold Path to do what Siddhartha Gautama did. This is what the great teacher said. The group of five were delighted in hearing those words and were soon awakened. That's the end of this particular sutta. Uh, so just to you know, put the fine point on it, this rather long sutta, it took me three weeks to teach it, just talks about how important it is for right practice, to practice what the Buddha taught and not practice what he didn't teach if we're going to be Dhamma practitioners and take it to our culmination. We have to keep well focused and we have to keep well informed. But if we do that, the end is assured. So, uh, Let's go to Brian. Brian, how are you today? Good, John. Um, happy to be here. Thank you for this. Um, I, there's just so much in here to unpack. Um, yeah. My one one thought that popped out when he when Udaka he was trying to convey to Udaka what what he had just come to the realization of, and the guy just was like, whatever, right? And he kept going. I I think most of us would just be like, well, maybe I'm I'm nuts, right? But he he knew. Yep. What he was, and he he kept going. Um, Further down, when we get into the the jhanas, right? There's there's the first four jhanas, which seem to be more dealing with the, the physical or the form realm, and then the, these additional four absorptions. I don't I don't know what you call them that seem to be on the mental. Yep. And it seems like there's this this progression through all of them that you have to abandon each one of them by first uniting your mind and your body, the form. Right. Yeah. And then once you once you've united body with form, then you have to work through these these mental fabrications that, that also have to be abandoned. Yep. And then that, that last piece there, that, that's Nibbana, right? That final release from everything. 
then, then you're you're just there's no self left. There's there's complete understanding. You've completed the path, and I I find it interesting that there's there's the eightfold path, and then nestled in the the final step of the eightfold path is this this sub eight <laughs> that That's gets right. you to the the final final release, and it's just fascinating. It, it is, and you're describing a, a profound understanding of the Dhamma. It, it kind of answers that question that I got a couple of years ago, is why did the Buddha keep meditating post his awakening? Of course he would. Because human life is ever more deeply meaningful the deeper we understand our own human life. And so the Dhamma keeps bringing that, that deepening understanding. It never, it never ceases. Um, I, just to describe that, my life is... is it's infinitely more interesting now, and I think I might have even said this to you, Brian, or someone recently, and to an outside person, it would seem agonizingly quiet. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, we, were, we were talking about that the other day. I, I agree. My life, like if, when I tell people, like, what do you do? And I'm like, I just kind of sit in the quiet <laughs> now. I don't do it. What do you do? I don't do anything. <laughs> and, and, and that no. doing of nothing is so fulfilling. It really is, yeah. yeah. So, I, again, thank you for this. I appreciate it. Thank you for your insight. Uh, I want to go to Louise. Louise, how are you? Hi. Um, I have to be honest. I fell asleep. <laughs> I thank I, you for your honesty. I think, I think, um, <laughs> I think because I've just been not so well. And um, I think I'm just pleased to be here and to have shown up and to be participatory in, in the energy but I don't actually think I'm able to fully take in the content so I don't have much to share unfortunately I'm just interested to listen so yeah thank you well, th- thank you for joining us I'm sorry I'm such a boring teacher I put you to sleep but it's the first time someone <laughs> told me you. that it's so. <laughs> not you it's not you thank no. you <laughs> thank you so much and I'll I'll uh I'll edit this and post the post the talk later on today or tomorrow if, if you want to catch up on it. So, thanks for joining us today, Louise. Tom, how are you? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm good. Good, thank you, John. Um, yeah, it is. It is um, as um, Brian was saying. There's so much to unpack. It's 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 quite a lot to take in. I know we did it in three three sessions I, I feel like we need almost more than that because yeah. it's there's so much there um over it's so um dense um that you almost need to take it super slowly um just to absorb it all but there, there was um a lot i i uh you know i took from it a lot that i was reminded of and some other things that i actually wanted to ask so um Something which, you know, I've, um, I guess something, a way in which I've, my, my own sort of perspective on, on the path has evolved over the year, um, that we've had is, um, is that sort of realization that it is only those few people with that speck of dust in their eye, so to speak, that, that will take to the Dharma and that you have to be very realistic in that and you have yeah. to, um, you know, not try too hard to to engage people 
um, uh, you know, you have to be realistic in terms of who will listen and who won't. So that's something I've learned now. Um, and I've had conversations because it, it just naturally, because the Dharma is quite an important part of my life now, I just naturally have conversations with people, right, where I, I, I share. I'm not sort of out there evangelizing, but it just, yeah. just comes up very, very naturally in conversations. And I've had conversations with people where they're just like, not. I, I, I mean, even even my, my, my housemate here, he, he just has a different perspective. He says, no, I like to get angry. You know, I feel that we need a bit of anger in the world in order yeah. to create change, you know, and I'm giving him the sort of the more Dharmic um, perspective, but he just doesn't get it, and, 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 and I don't think he ever will. Uh, he's yeah. a great guy. I just don't think he'll ever get that. So I've had conversations like that, and I've had other conversations. I had a conversation just recently with someone, this, this lady who was like, she was like, she was a very successful woman in finance, um, in you know, working in the city of London, very, very successful. And and when I shared with her some of the sort of core teachings, she was like, she 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 sort of sat there in silence for a few minutes. I was like, I've never I've never looked at the world like that right. before. That's that's amazing. Like it, you could see it had a real impact on her. Yeah. Um, and yet, from the outside. Just knowing both people through their personalities, I would presume that the person, my, my flatmate, who just doesn't really get it, I would have imagined he would be the person with a speck of dust in his eye and not the lady in finance who ended up being far more curious by the teachings um, than, than I imagined or I expected. Yeah. So, so here's my question, which I'm gradually um, finally going to get to. Well, in fact, I have two parts to the question. first one is, how do you know who has a speck of dust in their eyes and who doesn't, right? Um, and the second point to this question is, during the Buddha's time, there was a real limit on how many people could hear his, his, his message, right? Just through, through the, 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 the logistics of, of, you know, how communications happened back then. Yeah. Um, nowadays, we do have the opportunity to share messages on a far bigger scale. Now, um, what is your take on, you know, if you if you imagine, let's say, 1%, if you speak to 100 people, 1% of them might have that speck of dust in their eyes. Mm-hmm. Now, what's your take on, should we speak to 100 people then? And then hope that one person or through, you know, technology and, and all of these things. Is there a way to, do you think, to, to teach the Dharma in a way which is absolutely consistent with the teachings of um, Siddhartha Gautama? But at the same time to say, hey, actually, I want, you know, I, I want to reach a million people and say, well, if we get one percent of a million people, suddenly you do have a far bigger um, you know, number of people following the Dharma. So I'm just very, I, I don't personally have an opinion on this yet. I'm just curious to get your, to get your perspective um, first. Yeah. <laughs> well, as far as, uh, am I able to tell, identify people with a little speck of dust in their eyes and those that aren't? Uh, no. <laughs> um, and and I, I stopped even trying to evaluate people in that way. In other words, I've had, in the past, I've had people that came to, to the Sangha and I said, one class and out. And they, they're still with me today. And I've had people that had great enthusiasm 
and uh, didn't stick it out. So I, I gave up even trying to judge people that way, which allowed me to just present the Dhamma. And if, 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 you, if it's for you, fine. If it's not, that's okay too. As far as um, reaching more people, you know, it said that the Buddha never left a 400 square mile area of northern India, southern Nepal, and yet he's still impacting the entire world today. Uh, so I think it's more the Dhamma than technology that's important. So maintaining the purity of the Dhamma is really all that I'm that concerned about. Um, I don't even know how to how to describe this. I would I would does it, I would hope every human being would take to the Dhamma and awaken. But again, that we just talked about that. That's completely unrealistic. And I I knew I, how do I say that? It would be beneficial, I think, for everyone to take to the Dhamma and awaken. But then again, I really don't know that, do I? Because the world is what it is. The world is rooted in ignorance, not rooted in understanding. So I live in a world that is naturally ignorant. Um, but I found a way that I can understand that ignorance. And so as an individual, I can live calmly and peacefully, whether I'm talking to a roommate who's not interested or someone in high finance that is a little bit interested. And I can be a representation for both of those folks. But really what I'm concerned about is those that, are, that have a little dust in their eyes and are interested, that they can find me and that I present the Dhamma in a way that is accessible to as many people as possible. Now, um, I'm closer to the end than the beginning. Nobody knows how long they're going to be here. I'm very pleased that I have five teachers established and three more in training. And, you know, I just, I, it's going to continue, I think. And that's all that I could really think about. So you can fall, I can fall easily into the idea that I'm a savior too. And that what I have is so important for the whole world and everybody's got to listen to me. And I've lost my mind again, haven't I? So in this moment... Um, oh, sorry. But, so I just wanted to ask a question. Well, sorry, let me, let me I, just I'll say this, Tom. So like, yeah, like yeah, the please. Buddha realized... That, again, this, is, this sutta and next week's sutta were so important to me in how I, te how I teach, where the Buddha said it would be to my dis-ease if I tried to teach everyone. But I recognize, again, Siddhartha Gautama is still teaching me 2,600 years later. I realize that there's only a very few people with just a speck of dust in their eyes. And so while the Buddha was, was reaching out to a much smaller audience than I am, you could say that I'm reaching out to the whole world where the Buddha was reaching out to that 400 square mile area. Um, the percentages don't matter because the percentages have nothing to do with whether the Dhamma is useful. So you had a, another question. Well, just, a, I'm just, I, I 100%, um, you know, understand where you're coming from in terms of, in terms of um, making sure that the teachings are pure, making sure that you're not striving too hard to, um, you know, convert people and then, and then you end up, um, uh, losing your own mind in the process. Yeah. Um, uh, all of those things I, 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 I totally get. Um, 
I'm and I and, and you know again I'm not this is not it's not coming from a place of me thinking I want to do this right but I'm because because I actually quite enjoy being able to relax into my practice and to just um, develop the Dharma in a natural way I'm just curious um, like if let, let's imagine if I could just throw out a, a hypothetical somebody were to love your teachings a very rich wealthy gentleman or, or lady and were to say um, uh, John, here's a million dollars, right, for you to promote, well, to to publish your teachings, let's say, mm-hmm. in influential places, wherever that be. I don't know, publishing books that go into you know Barnes and Noble or whatever the bookstore is, or to or to um, put put I, I don't know uh, adverts on on TV or, or or whatever it might be. But 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 there was no constraints on you on how you were to do that. So it, it would no, there would be nobody saying, you know, you 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 have to do it this way or that way. It could be absolutely pure as you see it. Um, you know, respecting the teachings. Mm-hmm. Is that something you would? that you would want to do um or would you say that any kind of <laughs> tendency um, towards trying to reach too many people and broadcast the message on too big a level would be in some way distracting uh no i don't i think well in your scenario if someone gave me a million bucks today i'd probably call you first honestly and and ask you what's the best way to get the word out so i'm not averse to to taking out advertising or billboards or, you know, any kind of, um, I, I don't see anything that would contradict the Dhamma in doing that to make it more, um, known to people. I would certainly do that. Uh, but I, I and then to say that I also, Hmm. I, I promote the Dhamma as I think it's, it's, as I think I can, be most effective in doing that um but I'll, you know somebody you if you know some wealthy benefactors send them my way <laughs> yeah, I don't know anyone. I'm uh, yeah just I, a hypothetical I, but yeah i yeah i think if someone gave me a million dollars today i'd probably spend a thousand on myself and my dog and the rest would go to promote the dhamma so uh it, it, again, it, it, but I don't, I don't, I don't really look at it that way. I've never even thought about. No, gee, no, no, I, I, I wish. Not, I know you weren't that. even asking it that way, but I've never thought. Gee, I wish somebody yeah. would give me money so I could promote it. Um, no. it it's kind of like when I first started out. The only reason I started teaching meditation is an acupuncturist that I was seeing uh, was involved in a a group called the Global Alternative Healthcare Project, which was a. a they were like doctors without borders, but for alternative health practitioners, acupuncturists, massage therapists, etc., cetera, uh, Qigong instructors, yoga instructors. And they would go to where people were underserved and bring their services. And she asked me if I would teach a meditation class to raise money to support her in doing this. I think she had a trip to, uh, I think it was in Kenya at the time, it was 10, 12 years ago, 14 years ago. And I said, sure, let me do it. I was a meditator and I enjoyed it. I thought it'd be fun to do. And so that's what started me teaching meditation. I didn't even really think about teaching the Dhamma um, because the idea was let me just get a few bucks, you know, five bucks, five bucks ahead to support this. But after two classes, I realized if I'm going to teach this, it's not going to be just a, you know, a, a general meditation mindfulness practice. It's going to be focused on the Dhamma. Um, and that really helped focus my own teaching career. You know, I'm going to teach just the pure Dhamma. 
And uh, I might have made more money for Tamara was her name. Um, but I, I didn't. And, you know, I, I was able to send her to Kenya. I think I raised about two grand over a year and sent her to Kenya. But the important thing was it kind of got this whole thing started. And it was, it was teachings like this that, that guided my initial teaching. I remember my, my first class, I actually had props and I was, uh, I don't want to describe it. Uh, but I was trying to appeal to as many people as possible rather than try and teach a Dhamma. And I realized very quickly that I was just misleading people and that was cruel. So uh, I didn't do yeah. it. Great questions. And, um, you know, again, I, I, I the, the right word isn't hope, but I'll use it. I, I hope that more and more people continue to develop the Dhamma because I just think it's good for human beings to do this. Whether I think the whole world is going to turn around, I, I kind of doubt it, you know, but that's not the yeah. question. And ultimately, the question for me is, what's the quality of my mind in this moment? And it's a whole hell of a lot better than it's ever been in my 66 years. So. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, John. Matteo, how are you? All good. Uh, hi, everybody. And yeah, I like uh, Tom's questions. I really like this. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking about, uh, especially the second one, is like, uh, we talked more or less this one a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago. It's like, I like the idea of John teachings and his website because like all of us in a different way, we make an effort to find him. Yeah. And then I think, it's like, yeah, I don't know. I talk, of course, personally, if I found John in a big billboard, you know, with a big smile saying, hey, come to see it, I probably, probably I don't go. Because, yeah. um, uh, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was like a, you miss something, but the idea that each of us make an effort first to find what Buddhism more or less is, and then we find other other school and tradition talking to me, Tom and Alex. Now we try other things, and we say no, it's not for us, and then probably we'll be disappointed and frustrated. Start to look everywhere till we find John. And I think if I didn't do that uh, big and deep research, I'd never find out. As I said last time, you know, I, I was very very strike when I, when I found your website very simple I immediately said oh that's there is somebody that doesn't try to sell me something so yeah. just like I need to make an effort to look beyond the, all the flashy lights you find the website or uh, Instagram all this kind of stuff and um, I want to say that probably that we are like an exclusive group but, but yeah. I like the idea that it's not for everybody I mean like yeah. you need to make it personally and then you can arrive here. Yeah, that's right. We're not we're not an exclusive group. In other words, anybody that wants to practice with us can practice, but we're not going to appeal to everyone. You got me thinking about something. When I first started building the website, which is a dozen years ago now, um, I started learning everything I could about search engine optimization (SEO), and uh, that was uh, back then. A lot of it with the algorithms have changed a lot in the over the years, but the idea was that you didn't that you wrote with certain words and certain phrases to attract Google search, and really the substance of what you were writing wasn't all that important. What was important was getting so many people to find your site. <coughs> but if I did that, I had to change the writing. So I really came up against what Tom what what Tom was bringing up. Do I write to attract an awful lot of people, or do I write as pure as I can, an authentic Dhamma. And so obviously the decision was, 
I'm not writing for search engine optimization. I'm writing so that people find me, find something that's useful. Um, but, you know, I struggle with that a little bit. Um, I wish I kept some of the early websites because they're, they're, you talk about how clean it is. You should have seen some of the early ones. I, I mean, they're, I, I, just thinking about them, I didn't keep them so I can't go back and look at them. But they really were a lot of bells and whistles and look at me and look at me. But looking back on it, there was no way people were going to find anything useful there because it, you know, it was it was hidden underneath the hype, even though it was still there. So, um, like like everyone, I've learned. I first learned the Dhamma, and then I've learned how to present the Dhamma, and I learn every class um, how to present the Dhamma in an ever more useful way, based on what we're doing in class, based on. You know, my classes aren't just I teach and you go away. This discussion that we have in each and every class is as important as the teachings. As important as the teachings. Because it allows us to really integrate it in a personal way, to become intimate with the Dhamma. And it's so important. Uh, it's something that I've never seen anywhere, you know, in any of, any of the other um, so-called sanghas that I was a part of. There was never this in-depth, intimate experience of the Dhamma. So, and you're, you're all inspiring to me in that way. So, I hope it is for you. So, if you really want it, spread the word. Spread the word. Get out there. No, just, Louise, I'm sorry. Yeah, can I share something just as a reflection from Please. kind of listening to this conversation? And my background is in marketing. I've been, um, you know, I've been a marketeer pretty much all of my career. Um, and it feels to me like as soon as we make the Dharma prescriptive, um, it completely goes against anything that the Dharma actually stands for. I because hear. this idea of you need the Dharma to be fixed. Yeah. That, and as, soon as, we make some, as soon as we make something prescriptive in that way, which is here's something that prescriptively can wow. change society or hear something prescriptively that can change humanity um, yeah. straight away we are not practicing the authenticity of the Dharma which You're is so right. like not grasping not trying yeah. to change not um, you know nothing to be fixed like radical accept like radical acceptance and I think I really like the idea of, you know, if you are in your own space creating something that is valuable and discoverable, the right people will find it. And they will feel like they found it rather than you found them. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, like, I, I think I agree with Matteo a little bit in the sense that um, I'm quite happy for this to be a private experience that I have that I don't have any need to tell anyone really about but it will emanate in in my energy yes. and in 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 subliminal ways I yeah. will become a role model in a sense for without even trying yeah. you know with, with with no 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 effort yeah. or intention necessarily just 
yeah so I, that that's what i feel like i just wonder if this like kind of prescriptive idea actually goes against the whole ethos yeah you're you're absolutely right because that makes it a, a, a salvific religion again doesn't it yeah and 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 knowing that um is is practicing the dharma and not presenting it in in that way that we you know that the end is near save your soul uh, that's not what this is about because that's just playing in people's fears too, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I had I had another I had another question. I forgot that I actually came tonight with a question, and um, it's based on the new Netflix series. I think everyone's probably watched it called "Don't Look Up." What is it? And it's called "Don't Look Up." Don't look up. Don't look up. And there's a lot of discussion around it at the moment. It's a bit of a spoof, really, on um, there's a meteor heading to uh, basically wipe out humanity. And there's a bunch of scientists saying that there's a meteor coming in six months' time, we're all going to die. And the government are like, you know, is that, don't know, we don't know if that's true. And then they get this like Elon Musk type person that says he's going to save the whole world. And people are like, the government is saying, don't look up, don't be scared. And the scientists are like saying, look up, like in the sky, it's heading towards us. And um, it's just really interesting because um, it's about ignorance. Really, the whole movie is about ignorance and about everything that humanity has come to value except life itself yeah. <laughs> um and it, it's it's so 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 interesting and it, it made me reflect and i remember when i first met alex and we were talking about um buddhism and uh, you know and I, I said to him like is there aspects of buddhism that's like bypassing which is like you know not yeah. feeling things and um and i I, I wonder if, because it feels like there's a little bit of like a kind of a contradiction in my mind that almost like as if there could be aspects of Buddhism that could be misinterpreted as in don't look up, right? <laughs> like it doesn't matter oh, if, yeah. there's a meteor, if there's a meteor heading towards us. Well, what's the point in looking up? Like it's coming, be present in this moment, like don't look up. And then there's another aspect of, like when you talk about skill and when you talk about awareness and attention, that there is an invitation to look up. Um, yeah, I, I think it's just that, Louise. I, I mean, if, if I heard today and I believed it, that a, that a meteor is going to hit us and end life uh, as we know it, destroy the planet, I want to be, be at ground zero. I want to experience it. For one thing, I would know that there's no alternative, so I might as well yeah. be there for it. You know, what, what, what could yeah. be more um, significant to a human life than the end of it in that way, in that spectacular way? So let me be present yeah. for it. Uh, and as far as understanding it in the, in the context of the Dhamma, it proves impermanence, doesn't it, on a grand scale? Yeah. Be, be present for it, not ignorant. Yeah, I guess. But don't lose our minds over the, it. You know, it, there's but, there's some people yeah. that would say, "Well, the, the the end is coming. Let me put my Cadillac in a bomb shelter while I stand on top of it." You know. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But that's. I think that's the thing, though. Like, I think that there is a sense of you know, um, uh, like 
in terms of like feelings and things like that of um you know radical acceptance and things um there is a in this therapy in the therapy world like that's kind of considered bypassing in a sense it's like you know sort of trying to reframe something but i think what's really important for me the the, the important nuance is that it's not but the, this culture isn't about saying completely ignore or be ignorant it is like you say don't lose your mind over it yeah yeah, and that is why. So, I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. Yeah, so so the whole kind of don't look up thing. It's you know it's a, it's quite a it's quite a contradiction in a sense because like don't look up and there's an ignorance in that, and then there's a don't look up and lose your mind in a sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I I think I understand it better than I ever have. Um, because at first, I'll say that when I sort of first thought about the, the Buddhist culture, I, yeah, I, I kind of thought, well, isn't that bypassing? Isn't that ignoring what I'm feeling? But I realized it's not. Well, I would say, Louise, yeah. that most of my Buddhist experience prior to coming to what the Buddha taught was, was a system designed for spiritual bypassing. I mean, it, it always was, all of it was about developing something in the future for yourself to establish yourself in. That's bypassing what's occurring right here and right now. Uh, where, and I think the Buddha realized that too, that he, he you know, that, that would be the ignoble search, wouldn't it? So the noble search is, is, is using a technology like jhana meditation in the Eightfold Path to deeply immerse ourselves in what's occurring. Without the need, without the need for for bypassing, bypassing would be wanting it to be different than it is. Isn't there? A, there's there's a thing here too that's that's very binary in that that problem statement. Whether you look up or you look down, it, it's not a binary option. Mm. There, there's a third option, right, which the Buddha talked about, which is the middle way. Yeah, you can look up. And you can look down. It's just, again, being okay with either direction you're looking and not taking either direction personally and just stay in the middle of those two worlds. And that, that's where the, at least for me and what I've, I've come to experience is the Dhamma's right, right in between the, the two poles. Yeah, you're so right. And that, that is the middle way. What, and even So in, in Louise's scenario, I hear that the, all the great scientists of the world, or most of them say that the meteor is coming, but I also understand impermanent. So, okay, everybody thinks the meteor is coming. Maybe, maybe not. But I'm not going to lose my mind over it. And that's, and that's reality, isn't it? Because even if this meteor is coming at the earth, something else might intervene. And who knows? So in, in this moment, a meteor is coming at earth. It might hit us, it might not. Everybody says it is. What's the quality of my mind? Which is the same response as if I'm driving down the street and, and you know, I, I have a car accident or somebody cuts me off or I'm in the supermarket and somebody, you know, whatever it might be. In this moment, what's the quality of my mind? Am I calm and at peace? Have I united my mind and my body? Or have I allowed this meteor or another event or a virus cause me to lose my mind because I need it to be different? 
when I see my... I won't share the ending of it, but watch it and let me... <laughs> well, share, I won't share... I didn't I hear that, Louise. I won't share the ending of the Netflix um, film, but if you watch it, it'd be really interesting because uh, there's a lot of the characters in the film that do lose their mind and the outcomes aren't so favourable. Um, so it's interesting. Yeah, I got. I, I don't have a Netflix subscription, so I'm going to have to take one just so I can see that, that movie. Yeah. But, uh, it sounds good. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, th- thank you, Louise. Again, th- what a what an inspiring discussion, uh, and it really does come down to to all the, you know the the media is coming at us all the time, whether we're talking about it or not. And so, what are we going to do about it? Well, not much, except take to the Dhamma and and understand understand what it means to have a human life, and then each and every moment is meaningful. Because it's such an you bring up that that word bypassing is so important because then I'm not I'm not forcing myself to bypass my own life, and that's what always confused me because all my years, you know, first as a Catholic and this and that, then nothing, you know, and then Buddhism, Eastern religions, I was always trying to find out what I wasn't rather than what I was. I was constantly bypassing my own life. And now I find out that I'm just a human being. And human beings have these types of experiences. And it's the experiences of humanity that are so meaningful. Without me needing them to be any different. Without me taking it personally. It's the ultimate liberation, isn't it? And we're all doing that. You've all listened to these classes over and over again about what this means to not take life personally. It's it's the it's the greatest reward that we can ever give ourselves. So happy New Year, everyone! <laughs> um, we're going to continue this next week with the Nagara Sutta, which fits nicely into the Aryapariyasana Sutta. The Nagara Sutta, the Buddha describes in detail his own mental process of awakening. Uh, so you'll find it useful in in, uh, in the context of this sutta. Uh, any other questions or comments about today's class? All right, my friends, we'll finish with Meta as we always do. And uh, I look forward to seeing you next year. All right, we'll finish with Meta. So gently close your eyes, gently close your mouths, and take a moment to be mindful of your in breath and your out breath. And let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state, 
Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Peace. See you all soon. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you, John. Um, John, just very quickly. Sure. Um, while, while you're still there, John, um, if, um, just, and I was just wondering if I could have a chat with you over the coming days, if possible. Um, Absolutely. We can do it now if you want, or we can do it another time. Yeah, if, if I, do, I wouldn't mind just um, preparing for it a little bit, but sure. I'm just wondering if you might be free tomorrow or the day after. Um, uh, just for a... Absolutely. Um, tomorrow, I, anytime after, after one o'clock my time, I'll, I should be free. So just send me a time when it's good for you. Is that, yeah, okay. so that would end up being tomorrow evening for you? Yeah, that would be 6 p.m. for me, or, um, and, and if not, is New Year's Day a possibility? Oh, after yeah. The, after yeah. the Sangha? Yeah, or? and we will have a class on okay. New Year's Day as well. So, yeah, just come up with a time yeah. that's good for you and let me know. And that's true for any of them. I'm Maybe always available after the class you. or something like that. Brilliant. Sounds okay, good. thanks a lot, John. All right, my friend. All right, See you all you. soon. See you, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Happy New Year. See you Bye. Saturday. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.